Thanks, Dave. Morning, everyone. Um, just give me one second here. Before we get to uh, this week's sermon, I just have a brief uh, staffing announcement quickly. Um, basically, the summary of it is that uh, Michaela Braithwaite, who's our kids and teens worker, uh, has accepted a position as a lecturer at the Baptist Theological College and will be moving off staff uh, at the end of January to take up that uh, position. Um, we've, we've spoken quite a bit with her about this. Uh, her and Duncan, you may not know her and Duncan, but uh, many of you do know, do know them. Uh, we're delighted that they, they'll stay, they stay in a, as a part of ch- the church. They feel like Parkhurst is their church family and they're delighted and we're delighted that they're staying uh, at Parkhurst, but Michaela will be transitioning off staff at the end of January and beginning lecturing in the middle of Feb. Uh, she's moving into lecture Hebrew and Greek. Um, and yeah, as we've spent a lot of time talking with her about it, uh, we feel a sadness that she's leaving us. Uh, she's done a wonderful job in the most testing of conditions for a new person. She started about two months before lockdown hit and has basically been an online uh, kids and youth worker uh, through COVID and has uh, done a remarkable job. And so we're sad in many ways to see, to see her come off staff, but we're delighted about the opportunity that she's got. Uh, I'm sure you can appreciate that not many people can lecture uh, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, and God, <laughs> how many people can even read it? Like, I, w- I have studied Hebrew and Greek and I still struggle. I'm going to go to Michaela for some refresher courses. Um, but... You know, God has uniquely wired Michaela with an exceptional brain and um, real gifts in teaching and in lecturing. And we feel like it's a, it's a step that the Lord's leading her into, which is going to bear uh, so much kingdom fruit and will be really life-giving for her as well. So we're, it's a mixed thing. We're sad she's going, but we're delighted about what she's stepping into. And so we would love your prayers for us as a church. Uh, let's be praying as a church around uh, the next person that we need, uh, we obviously need somebody to step into that role and the right fit and everything else in the time, so please make that an, an issue of prayer as you remember the church uh, together. And then, uh, we don't normally do this, uh, we don't mention every crisis and everything that people go through, people are going through crises every week, um, but this morning I just wanted to particularly pray for Chris and Leanne Rouse, many of you know Chris and Leanne, they've been with the church since we started, they were attacked in their home on Friday evening. Uh, and, and beaten and stuff, and they are obviously traumatized and quite shaken. The, mercifully, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, and so they're okay, but obviously very um, traumatized and uh, overwhelmed, and so they need all of our prayer and our love. Um, and if you know them personally, um, I'm not sure how you can reach out to them because their phones were taken, but I, I, I come talk to Claire if you want to get new numbers for them to send them a message just to let them know you're thinking of them and praying for them. But maybe let me just pray for them and for us as we come to God's word this morning. Father, thank you for the joy of being part of a family where we get to share both the good and the bad together and just live our lives with one another. Yeah, and we bring Chris and Leanne to you this morning and we ask you, Father, just for your mercy on them. We thank you that... um, They've already experienced your mercy, even in the midst of this horrendous attack 
you have protected them and spared them, and we thank you for that. And we pray that as their bodies and their hearts heal, that they would experience so much of your kindness washing over them. We pray that you would be closer to them than ever before, that you would bind them up and that they would come through this more deeply in love with you, strengthened in their faith and able to bless us and be amongst us as soon as possible. We lift them up to you for your care and for your love this morning. And we pray that you would continue to guide Michaela as she gets ready for her transition. We are so grateful for the gift she has been and continues to be amongst us. And we pray that you would bless her and Duncan in these coming months of transition. And that you would guide us as a church as we, as we take the next steps to finding somebody to fill that place. We submit ourselves to your leading. We, and we say, Father, please lead us to the right person who would bear so much fruit and build so much health and strength into the lives of our kids and our teens here. And as we come to your word now this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. We, we say it week after week, Father, that we need your voice more than anything else, more than we need to draw our next breath. We need the life-giving Spirit of God to bring to life in our hearing the words of God that would shape us strengthen us, challenge us, and change us. And so we pray that as we open up your word now, as we look at it, that in my words we would hear your voice, that you would open up our eyes to see and our hearts to receive, and that you would strengthen us as your people through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Mark Chapter 11, Liam was reading from Mark chapter 10, apparently, in worship. I don't know if you were paying attention. I was like, I had a little heart palpitation. I'm like, I'm in Mark 11. Liam's in Mark 10. But anyway, we're in the same passage. I think he got it wrong. Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. We are diving into uh, this. If if you've been around church for a while, uh, we're on Palm Sunday. Uh, I was always so confused as a kid. Uh, the church I grew up in, every time it was Palm Sunday, they would schlep you off to adult church. You couldn't go to kids' church anymore. You had to get dressed up and then carry palm branches through the church, waving them and like singing, Hosanna, whatever else. You didn't know what Hosanna meant. And you just had to wave these palm branches that some auntie had cut off somebody's like uh, palm tree somewhere in Joburg there and brought them along and like <laughs> walking down the aisle. And I remember distinctly as a kid waving this thing and thinking, what the heck am I doing here? I mean, this is cool. You know, we get to wave branches in the church, but I had no like, what am I doing? And maybe, <laughs> maybe when you think of Palm Sunday, you're also like, what on earth are they doing? Well, hopefully by the end of this morning, you're not going to have the same uh, confusion, Lord willing. Um, I thought that was someone's phone. Mark 11, from verse 1. When they approached uh, Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street 
tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let me give you um, some context. If you haven't been with us the whole way or you've forgotten where we are in Mark, we've been in Mark for quite a while now. We're heading towards the end, and if you page ahead, you'll see there's still a little bit of Mark uh, left to go, probably about a third of the book at least. Um, The first part of Mark up to chapter 11 takes three years. From now till the end of Mark takes a week. So... Uh, you know, it's now we're like deep diving on some significant world-changing events. So it's been three years now, we're in one week for the rest. And I would say the most important week uh, in history uh, is what we're going to be looking at over the next few months, because that's how we do it. We go very slowly here. And you'll, in the strange providence of God and a little bit of MacGyvering by me, what uh, is happening is that as we get to the end of Mark, it's going to map up with Easter. So it's, ha- it's taken a bit of work, but you know, Jesus will be crucified, as it were, on Good Friday and resurrected on Sunday, and it'll be in the book of Mark. Are you, are you tracking with me? You're staring at me like, okay, like, okay. So amazingly, in the providence of God, when we started preaching Mark, I didn't know when it was going to end and the timing, and I was sort of stressing that we'd be preaching the resurrection like a couple of weeks after it happened in the church calendar causing me sleepless nights, but don't worry. If you were worried, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out fine. Um, So what's happened now? Jesus, last week, you heard wise, he he has left Jericho. He's left Jericho, healed Bartimaeus, another guy, blind guys. Now he's making the ascent from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And there's big crowds of people uh, following him. Uh, Jesus, throughout the three years of his ministry, has almost been at pains to tell people to just keep things quiet. If he's healing people, he's just like, Look, don't, don't go and tell anyone. Just this, keep it, let's keep it on the low. He's, he's ducking out when they're trying to make him a, a ruler. He, he's trying to stay out of the limelight. And this week we see a fundamental shift in the ministry of Jesus as he approaches this last week. He sort of steps out of the shadows, as it were, and into um, the limelight. And he goes head to head here with the Pharisees that ultimately ends up in his crucifixion on, on Friday. He's going up from Jericho. It's a bit of a walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a bit of a mission, but there are masses of crowds. And this is Passover. So this is the, everyone's going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. So it's not like normal sized Jerusalem. Jerusalem swelled by hundreds of thousands. Some people think millions of people over the Passover week. So there are a lot of people there. Jesus, it says, he heads to to Bethpage and Bethany, which is just outside 
um, of Jerusalem, sort of it's Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and then there's a little town, uh, Bethany, there where uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his, his mates, uh, you know, it's, it's so cool that Jesus has friends, like mates, like, you know, you go watch the rugby with? Yeah, mate, these are his mates. Like, he, if he had to go watch South Africa, I love talking about South African after we've won. Uh, if he had to go watch rugby, he'd go watch it with Ma- Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he's heading there, and they are, there's just people everywhere. We don't read it in Mark, you read it in Luke, I think, where it says all the people are going out because they want to see what? They want to see Jesus because they've heard about this guy and all the signs and the wonders that he's done. They just want to see him and hear, maybe he's going to say something, maybe he's going to do something else. Like, this is amazing. We've come here for Passover, and we get to see this Jesus guy doing all of this cool stuff that we've heard about, and they wanted to see Lazarus. Lazarus was like, they'd heard about Lazarus, because Lazarus was from Bethany. They would know about that. This guy who, who had died, and who Jesus had resurrected, and they went to go and see Lazarus. Like, you know, they want to poke him. Like, hey, hey, tell us about how it went. Like, and Lazarus is telling the same story again and again. Can you imagine? Yeah, I died, and then I, you know, like, I heard this voice calling me, and I wondered, you know, you know when you have to tell the same story again, and I can imagine that's Lazarus. He's just like, okay, can we all just get everyone together, and I'm going to just tell the story once. <laughs> Pay attention. Um, the, and, and Lazarus has got <clears throat> a, a mark on him. The Pharisees have, because everyone is celebrating what Jesus has done in Lazarus', Lazarus life, it says the Pharisees have, have planned to kill Lazarus. So there is a whole bunch of action going on, even as Jesus now enters here, and his profile is lifting. But what is this passage about? It's not about kids randomly walking down the aisle, waving palm branches and being confused. Um, If you're taking notes, this is my summary of what this passage is about. This passage is about introducing us to a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of a king for a different kind of kingdom. Let's first look at the different kind of king. This king is truly three things. Firstly, he's truly humble. He is truly humble. Imagine how this could have gone down. I don't know if you've ever had the joy, uh, as a true Joburger, of being caught in a blue light brigade uh, or being run off the highway by one of them. But when our politicians sort of used to enjoy moving around the city, uh, blue light brigades were like the thing, especially on the highways. And a man... You know, woe betide you if you think that you're going to withstand the force of one of those things. And, you know, there's only normally one important person that they're moving in those cars or that whole thing. But the whole city or that whole section must just come to a stop, you know. Um, Contrast blue light brigades and politicians going places. I remember once going to a Christian conference. We had been there for several days, having the greatest time. And then I can't even remember which president. I think it was Thabo Mbeki came to do a speech or something. Now, suddenly when he arrived, we all had to go through metal detectors. You know, this is pre-COVID, so we didn't have to get sanitized and temperatures and stuff. But the, everything, there was fences. Now, you couldn't just somewhere move around or whatever else. Just because one guy had come, everything changed. And there were millions of people milling around and protecting him kind of thing. At a Christian conference, maybe somebody thought they were going to go whack him there or whatever. I don't know. But uh, it, it was a big fuss over one person. You know, we live in a world where politicians, celebrities, stars, you know, sports stars, they don't arrive unannounced. Claire and I had the privilege of being in the UK one, uh, one summer over the Queen's birthday. The, 
what is it? They call it the tripping of the color or something. I'm offending all the royal fans here. I think it's called the tripping of the color, whatever. Anyway, there's lots of pomp and ceremony kind of thing. It's just because it's the queen's birthday. I mean, she's had a good few of them. But it's just another birthday for, man, there's like flyovers. It feels like all of England arrive at Buckingham Palace for like wave flags and cheer old Lizzie on there, say, hey, God bless the queen kind of thing. It's like a vibe. And we wandered into it unknown. Like we happened to be in London that weekend and I suddenly saw in the morning like it's the trooping of the color. I thought, oh, we should go check this out. It's a bad idea. It was just, I don't like crowds. There were just way too many people. You know, it's not like um, she's just the queen and everyone's just chilled around her. Like anywhere she goes, moves, turns her head, waves the hand, like the world loses its mind. We're conditioned in our culture to like be all like um, G'd up around authority arriving. And here you see a truly humble and different kind of king. Jesus arrives. He is, we know, the king of heaven, the creator of every living thing. And yet here he arrives, and he gets onto a donkey that's never been ridden before and humbly just rides into the city on a donkey, not on a, a massive war horse, a donkey. Uh, a colt, a, a, a young, a foal, like a small donkey. I mean, I've never ridden a donkey. I don't plan to. But it's, I don't, it doesn't seem like the most dig. I don't think you can look very dignified and like regal riding a donkey. You know, and yeah, he's like this, you know, like wobbling into Jerusalem on this like Hong Kong donkey. It's just it's a mind mess of how the world arrives at things and this truly humble king arrives to take his place as the true king. And he causes an absolute ruckus amongst the people. But there's a reason why he rides on a donkey. Jesus knows the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. And in order to fulfill the scriptures, he shows and he evidences, we'll see some of this about his true sovereign power. He sends the disciples to go and get this donkey that's just randomly tied up somewhere. And the people know that he knows that they're going to let him take it. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, we know this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is arriving, not just trying to do the understated thing like, oh, don't make a, don't make a fuss about me, guys, you know. I'm just laid back. I don't want to really, you know, shine here. He's riding in, humble on the colt, the foal of a donkey, because he's, he's fulfilling the scriptures. And those who knew, they knew, this is him. This is the king. And as he rides that donkey into Jerusalem, the light bulb's gone for many people. Many miss it. But he is announcing himself on the scene as the long-awaited king of Israel, the one long promised by God. But he's not just humble in his arrival. He is humble in his arrival, but we read in Philippians the levels of his humility because Jesus is humility himself. In Philippians 2, you may know this passage well. If you don't, let's read it from verse 7. Speaking about Jesus interrupting this wonderful passage, I'll just dive into verse 7. It says, instead, speaking of Jesus, he emptied himself he didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. 
And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus is not just humble in riding into Jerusalem on donkey. He's humble and humble and humble. He humbles himself to the point of dying in the place of those who he has made to die for their sin so that they may have life in his name. Even the shameful death on a cross. He's willing to go to the lowest place. How can he do that? Because he knows who he truly is. He knows who he truly is. So he, it's okay if you don't think much of him. He knows who he truly is. So he can empty himself and divest himself of all of the glory that's rightfully his and do what needs to be done, God dying in the place of man. It could only happen that way. It had to happen. God had to take the place of a man because perfection had to die for imperfection or there was no saving. There was no appropriate sacrifice. And so God has to take it upon himself to do it. And he comes and he, first he humbles himself and becomes a man. God gets into a man's body. And then as a man, he humbles himself to the shameful death on a cross in the place of others who should be there in his place. And he can do it all because he knows who he is. And he loves us and he was willing to do that. The first thing that we see here is that this king is truly humble. The second thing we see is that he's truly able to save. He's truly able to save. We've just come out of another election season. We're not fully out of it yet because the posters are still up. I feel like until the posters come down, the elections are still with us. And we don't have any municipalities. They're still all arm wrestling and arguing with each other about who's going to govern where. But don't you like election season? I hate it. I mean, I'm saying that sarcastically. Like, overpromise. Hey, I mean, they promise the world, politicians, we will do this. We haven't done it for ages, but I promise you this time, if you vote for us, this time we're going to do it. And it doesn't matter who it is. I'm not knocking any party. They all just overpromise. They all scoot around the country. Are oh, we going to do this? We're going to do this. We're going to give you this, give you this, give you this. You know, we promise this time, vote for us. I promise you we'll do good, whatever else. And look how we've done it somewhere else. And like, trust us, we can do it here. Blah, blah, blah. Promise, promise, promise. And many people look to politicians to save us. They look to politicians to save us. And, I mean, you can hear the cynicism in my voice. It's not that I don't think politicians should be there. It shouldn't be there. The Bible says that God ordains them and they have a role to fulfill over us. So we should pray for them and submit to them and encourage them and, and help them and vote for them. But they can't save us. They can't save us. Who can? Well, Jesus can. And what are the crowd shout? What do the crowd shout? Hosanna. That's what that word means. Hosanna means save us. It's from Psalm 118. If you're making notes, Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, this is where it comes from. Verse 25, Lord, save us. Those words, save us. This is where I need Michaela. Uh, save us is, is I'm going to mess up the, the Hebrew pronunciation, but it's a smashing together of those two words, Hosanna. Save us. Lord, save us. Please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. This is what the people are shouting when they see Jesus. Hosanna, save us. Save us. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Save us. Save us. What are they shouting for? They want saving, but if you've been tracking with us all the way through Mark, remember what they're wanting saving from. They're wanting Jesus to come in there and overthrow the Romans. Restore the glory of Israel. They're not thinking, save us personally. 
you know, we're at odds with God. We've lost our way. We're a, you know, a misguided people. They're thinking, establish your rule here. Kick out the Romans. We will be God's people again in God's land with our temple. It's all going to be lacquer again. The Messiah has come. And they're declaring, they're declaring with their mouths a truth that they don't actually understand. Lord, save us. And Jesus says, I am coming to save you. I am coming to save you. His riding into Jerusalem on that donkey is him declaring, I am coming to save you. I'm just going to do it in a completely different way. He's not the political liberator that they want, but he is the long-awaited Messiah. And they declare with their mouths what they don't fully understand with their heads and their hearts, but he is truly able to save. And I think this is, this is true for many of us today in different ways. Let me ask you a question. What do you now need saving from? What do you need saving from? Is there something that you feel like, I need saving from, I need help with this thing? If, it, if it's anything that's sort of circumstantial, I would say it's a secondary thing. The Bible makes it clear that our biggest problem lies within us. And it's the waywardness of our own hearts that bend away from God and need to be brought back to Him. And we need to repent of our love of other things and our worship of other things and become, by God's grace, wholehearted people who love Him and put Him first. And we need, we need saving from ourselves. We don't need saving from the, the, the storms of life that wash over us. Yes, we do as well, but it's not primary. Those are secondary things that in God and His grace saves us from. But Jesus is not like a circumstantial savior. He's not coming to impose a political rule over the people. He's coming to capture hearts and to save them from themselves. The third thing we see here about this king is that he is truly the Lord. He is truly the Lord. It's amazing. You just see it. There's so many ways you see it in this passage. I'll just touch on a couple. This donkey, this donkey, Jesus sends the disciples ahead. You read in the other gospels, he says, There's a, you'll find a guy carrying a pot of water. You know, ask him about the donkey. It's unusual. Men didn't carry water back then. Men did very little household kind of things back in the good old days. Um, you know, it would have been easy for the guys to spot the guy carrying the water because, you know, that wouldn't have happened. All these weird coincidences. How did Jesus know? How did Jesus know there was going to be a donkey tied up in the city and that the people next to it, when they, when, uh, when they untied it and they said, hey, look, the Lord has need of it. He'll bring it back when he's done. It won't, it won't be long. It'll be now, now. He's going to bring it back right now. Uh, you know, sort of at the end of the day, returning your donkey. Uh, that they'd let it go. How, how does Jesus know that? Well, the simple answer is that he's the sovereign king of heaven. And, and he knows all things. And so he it's not, a, it's not hard work for him to understand that and to know that. The disciples' minds, imagine, they're just like, okay, well, imagine he sent you off. Okay, we're going to go into Jerusalem, have a look around, find a donkey, and we're going to scale the donkey. And well, while we're scaling the donkey, we're just going to tune under the Lord has need of it. He'll bring it back when he's done. You know, I don't know if I would have done that. Maybe they've learned to trust him at the, <laughs> to this point. It's so like, okay, well, we've seen him do a whole bunch of stuff. Let's just trust him. Let's go. Okay, you, ching chong cha, you have to do all the speaking. I'm just getting the donkey. You know, I don't know how it went down, but they go, and it's just as Jesus said. It's just as Jesus said. He is Lord of all things. He knows where the donkey's going to be. He knows how the conversation's going to go. 
He knows he's arriving in Jerusalem. And he knows that his death is what awaits him at the end of that week. And that he knows that he is going to be slaughtered in the same way that Passover lambs by the thousands are going to be slaughtered in that city. And that the picture for the people in the years and the decades and the centuries to come of thousands upon thousands of Passover lambs being slain, unnecessarily so because one lamb has been slain in that same week. That imagery, how did Jesus see that? He, he, didn't, he didn't kill himself. He didn't, it wasn't suicidal. He was murdered. And you look at the dates lining up and the days lining up. He is Lord over all things. And the people in some ways recognize this and they respond to it. They see him on this, on this cult. And what do they do? They put their robes down. They put, they put their robes down on the floor as the donkey's walking and walking over them, and they put palm branches and they wave them. The palm branches is like a, a, a celebratory waving of those things. When heroes would come back from war, kings would come, they would wave palm branches, a sign of celebration. But the putting down of the robes means that we are beneath you. We submit. We, we submit to you. You are over us. As you walk and walk over our robes, we submit our lives to you. And it's a, I don't think they understood exactly what they were doing. They did it for other kings. You can read in 2 Kings where it comes from, the story of Jehu, uh, and it, it carried on. I don't think they understood fully what they were doing. And I, as I reflect on it, sometimes maybe we don't understand fully when we call Jesus Lord. Friends, this is it. Jesus comes as Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord together. Some people love Jesus as a Savior. I need saving from sin, saving from circumstance, saving from yourself. Saving from other people, whatever else. Love Jesus as a Savior. He's forgiven me of my sin. Amazing. I love him for that. But Jesus comes as Savior and Lord. It's not an either or. Oh, I like him for that. Oh, gosh, no, no. He doesn't get to call the shots. Jesus comes as Savior and Lord. He gets to come, and he only comes when he comes as Lord into your life, and you relinquish control and authority, and you say, I'm no longer mine. I'm now yours. That's when you know you have become a Christian. If you want to know, are you a Christian this morning? I'm not assuming that everyone is. If you want to know, am I a Christian? You can answer this question two ways. I've looked to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness for my sin, and I have surrendered my life to his authority and his control. Those two things together make you a Christian. If you just look to him and say, every time I stuff up, I say sorry, and I try again kind of thing, but I basically live my life as my own captain. I'm in charge. I do what I want. I call the shots. I'm leading everything. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because he comes as Savior and Lord. He gets to call the shots. He is Lord over your life. And we, like they did back then, we lay down as it were the robes of our lives and say, we are underneath you. We are underneath you, Jesus, and he's not a domineering Lord. That's the thing. That's the message of the gospel that makes it so glorious that Jesus is a king unlike any other. And he doesn't come to squash his servants. He comes to die for them in their place so that they may know life for the first time and forever. And all the joy and all the love of his father that he could bless them and lead them and help them and love them and serve them for all eternity. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He doesn't come to keep his you know, citizens under his thumb. 
he comes to, as it were, be put under the thumb of all of his citizens and die an innocent death in our place. He is a different kind of a king because he brings about a different kind of a kingdom. He brings about a different kind of a kingdom. Where does Jesus go once he gets into Jerusalem? I never really thought about this enough until I really sat with this passage this week. Where does Jesus go when he gets into Jerusalem? It's almost an anticlimax of the story, isn't it? The crowds are waving the palm branches and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of people. This would have been a vibe. And he arrives into Jerusalem. And then it says what? He heads to the temple. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple after looking around at everything. Uh, Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany and to the twelve. That's it. He arrives to all this fanfare, heads to the temple, has a look around, and it's a bit late. So he's like, packs it in for the day and heads back out to Bethany to have an early night. Next week, you want to make sure that you're here because when he goes back tomorrow, as it were, not, you know what I mean, tomorrow in the story, it's all going down. It's, it's, it's such a wonderful passage. I'm not going to ruin it for you. I mean, you can read it. It's there, but uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing Passage, but it's almost an anticlimax. All of this worship and celebration and declaration, and he wanders in and he has a look at the temple and he goes back. But notice where he goes. He goes to the temple. He doesn't go and find, where's Herod's palace? I'm going to Herod's palace. I might be on a donkey and get rid of the donkey. I'm going to walk there for it. Right, let's go. I'm going to have a rumble with Herod. I'm going to announce I'm here. Listen, pal, it's me and you. We're going up like it's going down this week. This weekend in Jerusalem, he's got no interest in Herod. He's not heading for the palace. He's heading for the temple. Because the kingdom of God doesn't have to do with a political power. It has to do with spiritual renovation and overhaul. Jesus comes to overhaul the religious system, not the political system. He's not necessarily that interested in it. It's It's a subversive kingdom. He comes to change the world through the hearts of people, not through the systems of government. And you might think, hey, Jesus, you should have gone for Herod. Turn that place into a Christian country. Every time that's happened, read some church history. Every time that's happened, it's gone poorly. It's gone sideways. Christianity is not meant to be in a place of political power, friends. It's not meant to be there. Christianity thrives best at the margins of society. When we are persecuted, marginalized, have a look around the world if you don't believe me. Read. Look. The places where it's flourishing is where believers are not pride of place. They don't have political power. God seems to move through his church when it's under some heat and some fire. Not when it's a national kind of government or it's a national religion. Jesus heads to the temple and not to the palace because his kingdom centers around the transformation of the human heart that then infiltrates society and affects every part of it. Look with me at these two verses that speak about how his kingdom of God is about a matter of the human heart. I just want to, before we get into this, I want to remind you that it's not about, the kingdom of God is not about religious activity and duty. Some people, I think less, I think less so.